Welcome to another special topic episode of the Olefins Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast by IHS Market. Today is Thursday, August 12th. I'm Erin Roberts. Today we're joined by Aaron Brady, IHS Market Vice President of Crude Oil Research and Analysis, to talk about the crude oil markets. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. But before we get into our conversation, we ask everybody this. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do for IHS Market? Yeah, so my I've actually been with IHS since uh, 2004. Um, I actually joined uh, the original Cambridge Energy Research Associates, or CIRA by its acronym. Um, those of you in the who are familiar with sort of the energy world might know about the CIRA Week uh, conference that we've uh, historically had in Houston. Um, of course, it has been interrupted by the pandemic, but um, I think that's the only place where that that CIRA conference uh, brand name sort of still lives on. Um, but I joined in 2004. Sierra, um, of course, is the the firm was the firm that was started by Dan Jurgen, who's uh, still with us and uh, still writing books and is uh, still our guiding light on on energy, all things energy. Um, but uh, when I joined um, IHS uh, not IHS Market because that that happened later, but just IHS bought Sierra. Uh, I think it was late 2004. So, um, you know, you can say I've been with IHS or IHS Market since since then. But uh, basically, I've done a number of things, but always on the research side. Um, um, I've looked at downstream markets, but currently uh, I'm part of a team that looks at the the global crude oil markets. So we. Uh, you know, we get together every month and and think about where supply, demand, and prices are going for the next couple of years. I'm also part of a team that puts out a long-term outlook, so we look all the way out to 2050. We have different scenarios. In fact, we we just uh, released um, a new suite of scenarios that uh, look at the energy transition um, and uh, different ways in which the uh, the energy markets could evolve under di- different conditions. So it's uh, it's always interested interesting i'm never bored <laughs> yeah in typical podcast fashion aaron we always uh ask our our guests uh, to tell us a little bit about themselves personally and i know we were talking offline uh about uh your your enjoyment of music yeah yeah i mean i, lo- I like all sorts of music uh from classical to uh you know kind of alternative rock i suppose you would call it um so that's that's always been an interest of mine um i try to play some just uh piano but uh you know i'm I'm not classically trained or anything like that but i I find it's kind of an interesting way to uh exercise your brain in a different way um Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of an intellectual uh but uh also fun um so it's it's good to i think it's good to have uh outside interests otherwise uh uh, you know, a place like IHS Market would make us very dull if, if that's all we, we, we had time to do. Well, I think it's interesting because uh, even here on the podcast, we have a lot of linkages to music. I think, Aaron, you sing in a choir, right? Yeah, I, I sing. I sang in college. And I also, I got a ukulele in the pandemic. And oh, nice. Can't say I've touched it recently, but um, that's been fun to kind of practice and learn how to play. Yeah, and my wife's classically trained vocalist, and she was a vocalist for uh, a very, very long time—about ten years—at a at a large denominational church here in here in Houston. So it's uh, 
I don't play myself. I just appreciate it. (laughs) As interesting as that is, I know our listeners are excited to hear more about the crude oil market. So we're going to start with a review of what's happened over the last couple of years. And our first kind of unofficial question is going to be, what has been the impact of COVID last year and this year in the markets? Yeah, big question. I mean, you know, COVID upended all energy markets, right? Um, The economy, everything. Uh, And so the oil market was no different. Um, We Really, I I think that the first impact was um, before it it sort of became real in the West, um, we started to see, you know, there was, if you recall in sort of January, there was uh, a lot of news out of China that there was this novel coronavirus and the, you know, the uh, reaction of the Chinese officials to that was extremely uh, severe, as as you'll remember. I mean, they they shut down whole cities, uh, lockdowns, were occurring. And so we knew immediately that that was going to be a big deal for the oil market because China is, you know, uh, has become basically the driver of oil demand growth globally. Uh, It has been for for the past couple of decades, really. Um, But, you know, if you start to see uh, something that's going to impact that, you know, it's going to be a big deal for the for the oil market. And and sure enough, that's what started to uh, precipitate the decline in prices. And then um, when it became clear that this thing was not going to be contained globally uh, and that it was going to be uh, causing lockdowns in Europe and, and, and in North America, um, these are the big demand centers. So we saw basically almost an instantaneously collapse, instantaneous collapse in, in world oil demand. And in fact, um, the final numbers, I mean, they're always being revised, but the numbers we have right now are that demand on average last year fell about 10 million barrels per day. Never seen that before in the history of uh, of the oil market. Um, and we're still digging out of it. So um, I'd say that that was the, you know, the, the big, the biggest factor was the collapse in demand. And then, of course, that caused prices to to fall precipitously as well. Um, but there were also big supply changes, too. Um, you know, when demand falls by that much and, and that 10 million was an average in the second quarter, it was much more severe. It was more like I'd say I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'd say more like 20 million barrels per day during that during that second quarter, or at least in that April of 2020. Um, you know, under those conditions, you 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 know, if you have nowhere to store your oil and you have nowhere to sell it to, you can't produce oil. So we saw a massive shut-in of production globally, um, especially here in the U.S. Um, you know, basically, uh, producers had to just turn off their wells uh, for a period of time. Um, and we saw it in other parts of the world too. Uh, and then and then we saw a, a historic agreement. Uh, brokered by the U.S. in, uh, I believe it was April, uh, between uh, the OPEC and OPEC plus or non-OPEC participants to cut production by an historic amount of almost 10 million barrels per day. So again, another historic uh, impact from COVID was this massive supply cut. So I'd say those are the two kind of um, major things, and and we're still dealing with how that's evolving, right? this year we're seeing you know a strong recovery in the economy and that's being reflected in oil demand if you look at 
gasoline demand and diesel demand, um, they're kind of back to pre-pandemic levels already. Jet fuel is lagging, um, and, and that's because there's very little international travel, very little business travel still yet. Um, but demand has begun to recover. I don't think we're, we're expecting, on average, that demand to you know, surpass 2019 levels, pre-pandemic levels for another couple of years, but um, it is recovering. And that's that's why we've seen this turnaround in, in oil prices, you know, um, $70 plus uh, for Brent crude oil um, over the last couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that, that, that's, you know, that's been a bit of a surprise, but in a way it's not surprising because we've had this, this surge in demand. I think you brought up a good point, Aaron, uh, with this industry and the huge drop off in demand last year. I mean, this is an industry that's not used to falls in demand, right? I think the last time that you had a fall in global demand was what the fall of the Soviet Union, I think, was the last time there was a decline. Yeah, the the last big one. I mean, they're they're you're right. I mean, typically year in and year out. Uh, demand for oil globally increases by, let's say, one, one and a half percent. There are there are some years where, uh, you know, global recessions where it's where it's fallen slightly, but nothing on the scale of what we saw last year. So, um, yeah, you're right. The industry has been very accustomed to kind of clockwork demand increases globally. And so that that brings up a, another follow up item here on uh, on the industry because you mentioned OPEC. And so, again, if the industry is used to kind of clockwork demand, as you say, um, OPEC had to really pivot. And so how are they approaching this new market, I guess, if you will? Yeah, well, I think there's a a couple of things going on. I mean, yeah, you have COVID. uh, That's the kind of most urgent um, issue. And we're not out of the woods yet, uh, obviously. Um, we're going to be living with COVID for many years. And uh, I think uh, OPEC's viewpoint, and, and really I'm talking about the Saudis, you know, they're the ones with the most spare capacity. They're the ones who kind of lead uh, OPEC or OPEC, OPEC plus. Their view is that supply, the, the oil market is essentially too big for them to handle, to manage alone. Um, and uh, with the rise of, you know, U.S. production in the last decade, they need uh, they need contributions from other non-OPEC producers to to manage the market. In other words, to reduce supply when uh, conditions are getting too oversupplied, or to uh, return barrels to the market when things are getting too tight. And so, you know, they've been they've been uh, uh, you know they they have. Their goal has been to get as much non-OPEC participation as possible, and in particular from the other big super producer, which is uh, Russia. Um, you know, they they have insisted that R- Russia participate, um, and uh, you know the Saudis in particular have a have an oil weapon, so to speak, and they've they've deployed it a couple times in the past few years, and that is that they can, uh, in order to kind of uh, get discipline from other producers they can flood the market and make uh make things very painful in terms of collapsing oil prices it's painful for them as well but um you know they have the ability to do that pretty much overnight we saw that last uh march 
uh, in 2020 when demand was collapsing and they were insisting on uh, cooperation from the Russians and the Russians weren't forthcoming at that moment. So they decided, hey, we're going to get into a price war, flood the market and bring everyone to the table. And sure enough, it did work. Um, but their, you know, their goal is to get as much participation uh, for as long as as long as needed. And I think at this point, they believe that uh, they'll need that kind of supply management cooperation through at least the end of next year, uh, because, you know, there's there's clearly still uncertainties about, you know, how demand is going to evolve and and how how the recovery from COVID is going to evolve and, you know, whether these Delta variants are going to wreak havoc, et cetera. Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting from I mean, from an outsider's perspective, most people, I guess the saying is that everybody's an oil analyst because it's so, <laughs> it's so public, <laughs> right? And yeah. from, from an outsider's perspective, when oil prices saw that big recovery, I guess the question that I have really is, what is the cohesion uh, of OPEC members at this point in time? Because, you know, once you get too far past $60 a barrel, um, you know, it, it seems to me that everybody would... Uh, every, every country for themselves, right? That's what the attitude, yeah. I, I I thought it would be, you know, at least that's what it's been in yeah. the past, but what is it now? Yeah, no, I think those tensions are still there. Um, you know, there's, there's, OPEC is not uh, monolithic. You know, there's, there's lots of different producers in the group and, and now it's OPEC plus. So there's non-OPEC producers who are part of the agreement too. And they, and many of them have, you know, different motivations. Many of them have different abilities to produce oil. You know, some like uh, West African countries uh, have actually been in decline. So they, they don't really have the ability to increase production just because they're um, just sort of, um, they haven't had enough investment and so their 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 output is just declining uh kind of uh secularly but um uh others like uh united arab emirates the uae that have actually you know they've actually built a lot of capacity over the last few years um and that was one of the tensions that kind of reared its ugly head over the last couple months is that um they felt the uae felt that their quota was uh not high enough um you know it it, it the, the the um they felt that um you know they should be able to produce more at least starting next year um and at least or, uh, originally that was didn't seem like it was in the cards and so there was this uh potential for the ua to kind of leave the agreement or to just sort of do its own thing um they've seemed to have patched things up they got the ua got you know most of what they wanted um but also some of the other producers got higher uh, quotas for next year as well. So I think for the near term, um, you know, the, the, it's intact. But I, but I do think that um, higher prices certainly increase the incentive to increase production. I mean, they're not going to do it to lower prices, right? Uh, that's not their purpose, but they will do it. They will want to increase production to regain some market share to uh, profit from higher prices. So these are kind of normal market forces. This is how commodity markets work. Um, and, I, and I think that that's the challenge for the Saudis is how to manage it. Um, as long as demand is continuing to increase or not backsliding, I think it's manageable. Um, but you know, if, uh, if uh, prices were to slip, if demand were to slip, then I think uh, it gets more dicey because you know countries like the UAE will want to will eventually want to utilize their their 
their capacity. Yeah, and the other question that I would have, Aaron, is it seems like the the Iran Iranian situation is, seems to hang over the market. And can you talk a little bit about that about Iran and nuclear deals and and then and yeah. the like? Yeah, so just uh, for the listeners' background, I mean, Iranian production has kind of been on the market and off for the last, um, you know, decade. Uh, And the big issue, of course, is this nuclear controversy. The West does not want Iran to develop its nuclear technology into a weapon. Um, Iran says it has the right to develop its nuclear technology. And so, you know, the West has put sanctions on Iran in the past. Um, the, the first time was under the Obama administration. Uh, uh, and then um, and then they came to a deal uh, in 2016 where sanctions were lifted. And then, of course, in 2018, Trump administration reimposed those uh, sanctions. And so that that throttled uh, Iran's ability to, to produce and to export. I mean, they still produce. They're just not able to produce um, at the levels uh, that uh, that they would if they were at full capacity. So now the issue is, you know, with Biden as the new U.S. president, um, you know, he's been very forthcoming about uh, wanting to return the U.S. and Iran to this nuclear agreement. And I think w- w- our assumption is that both sides have the incentive to come to an agreement. Uh, we think that Iran would want to, uh, you know, increase its ability to produce oil and, and get access to hard currency. And, um, you know, their economy has been in tough shape. So that would that would be a plus for them if they were able to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, the devil's in the details. And so far, they've uh, been unable to come to an agreement. So I think, um, you know, they're stuck right now. Um, Iran wants all the sanctions lifted immediately. The U.S. wants uh, Iran to go back on all the uh, advances that they've made uh, in terms of nuclear technology that, that happened uh, since the second round of sanctions were imposed. And so, um, you know, how do they kind of share the, this political risk um, going forward and come to a deal? So it's not clear where we are. I think in, in, in the Obama era, the, the negotiations were a lot more transparent, but they're not right now. We, we only know that high level disagreements have been aired. Uh, and so, um, you know, this is about politics. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I'm sure Biden doesn't want to go into the 2022 midterms next year with uh, uh, a politically fraught uh, agreement. Um, so he, you know, they have to be, uh, they have to be hard lined up to a point as well. Uh, but the, but the Iranians also have a new, uh, a new president, and he's hard line. Um, so we're in a state of flux. Um, either we're going to come to a deal or, 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 or we're very far away from one. Um, and so I think in terms of the oil market, uh, I think the conventional wisdom is that there will be an agreement and that more Iranian oil will be coming, you know, either late this year or maybe early next year. But if that doesn't happen, you know, that I think that changes the, the equation quite a bit. Um, and, and so all of a sudden you, you won't have this kind of slug of new supply coming into the market like everyone thought would happen. Mm-hmm. So speaking of supply, shifting a little bit more to the U.S., how how will we move forward with this more restrictive supply environment? Yeah, so the U.S. is interesting. Um, I mean, the U.S. is so important because, um, 
you know, I think it's no exaggeration to say that U.S. shale or uh, we call it tight oil, but shale production has been uh, really a game changer for the world oil market uh, over the past decade and, and certainly over the past, you know, say six or seven years, uh, because what shale does is um it you know it's a it's a new kind of technology of producing oil that can be done over a very short amount of time in other words you can we know where where this oil is in the u.s and we know we it 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 gets to a point where you know you can decide to drill a well and then drill it within a few months Um, and so on a large scale when you have all these producers doing it uh, and they know where the oil is. They know the resource resource base is very large. Um, they can. The U.S. has been able to generate, you know, a million barrels per day or more within the course uh, of a single year. And if you think about the way demand used to grow, you know, globally, it was typically only a million, million and a half barrels per day per year. So in other words, the U.S. got to the point where it was generating enough supply single-handedly to meet world demand and that um you know that definitely kept a cap on on prices uh at times i think it had a uh, a role in collapsing oil prices especially 2014 15 uh era um but also you know even even last year uh, despite the pandemic uh, you know u.s production was growing very very fast and that that was another reason for the oversupply but um, things have changed, right? Um, one of the reasons they were able to generate that kind of blowout supply growth in the past was the U.S. shale industry basically spent every dollar that was coming in the door, and they borrowed on top of that, built up a lot of debt. Um, so they were able to spend a huge amount of money, um, but they spent it all on drilling, um, and they didn't return any capital to investors. Right. Um, so investors uh, eventually uh, got tired of this. And and this was even ha- starting to happen before the pandemic. This was sort of a theme that was certainly front and center in 2019. This need for the U.S. shale guys to embrace capital discipline and get their spending under control and return more capital to investors. That was uh, that was certainly uh, beginning to happen. And so we and other analysts had already you know expected that u.s supply growth was was going to slow down and now you know fast forward to 2021 they have there is clear evidence that they have changed their financial strategy uh in that direction in other words they're generating a lot of free cash flow right now um they're spending only enough money on the upstream on drilling to keep production basically flat um and so we've seen this reset in U.S. production. U.S. production was crude. Crude production was, I, I believe, it almost reached 13 million barrels per day right before the pandemic. Um, but now it's sitting at about 11 million barrels per day. So that reflects, um, you know, the cuts in spending that occurred last year, and then it, it reflects the fact that they haven't boosted spending back to previous levels. So there's been a real reset in production. And uh, that's that's been a big, you know, that's been a big change on the global for the global supply fund supply and demand fundamentals. You don't you don't have that um, supply growth anymore. So the big question now is what will the U.S. grow again? And if it does, at what pace? Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting point, Aaron, because 
high oil prices to uh, a U.S. producer is kind of like cake to someone on Weight Watchers. You can only resist it so long before you just dive right in head first, right? And so I think this has been very interesting to see how disciplined they've been. But the longer oil prices stay at kind of the plus 60, 60 plus, 70 plus dollar level, I mean, don't you think next year they may start inching up their capex to produce more oil? Yeah, I, I think they I think they will uh, as long. It, but it really will depend on uh, oil prices. So, um, like I said, I think that their um, their their financials, they've they've permanently pivoted in terms of this financial strategy. In other words, they're going to continue to um generate a cash yield that's that brings back their investors that's that's their number one uh need right now they got to regain the faith of these investors that have basically abandoned the sector um you know investors are more interested in technology stocks and you know other industries um and they they they've they've walked away from energy um so they need to regain uh the faith of these investors and bring it back and the way they do that is is to to return a lot of cash however um, I think the way to think about that is, uh, you know, if oil prices are, you know, WTIs in the kind of mid 60s next year, uh, kind of where it is right now, even the low 60s, they can do that, uh, and they they'll have enough money to uh, grow because you know they've they've had a big cash windfall this year. Um, they're going to be, you know, they've been repairing their balance sheets, and so in pretty quick order, they're going to be in much better financial uh, shape, and so. Uh, it's not like they're going to go back to spending every dollar that comes in the door. They're not going to do that. They're going to continue to return a lot of capital, but at a high enough oil price, again, kind of where we are right now, they can, they would have enough money uh, after returning that capital uh, to spend on upstream drilling. And uh, so we do think that they'll be able to grow again. Um, I, I do think that it's, you know, it, it there's a bit of a prisoner's dilemma <laughs> kind of uh, uh, situation that would evolve. In other words, you know, if you're uh, if you're a, if you're a producer in the shale patch and and you're you're saying, well, I'm going to just stick to my guns and not increase production. I'm not going to I'm just going to return all this money to investors. But your competitor down the street says, well, I'm doing the same thing, but uh, on the margin, I'm going to spend a little bit more uh, on drilling and I'm going to grow and I'm going to take advantage, uh, uh, gain some market share. I'm going to take advantage of these higher oil prices. Are you, as the more conservative guy, going to just sort of sit there and say, well, I'm going to stick to my guns, or are you going to also increase production? I think the latter, right? I think those are the competitive pressures that are going to start to emerge. But again, I think you need to have strong enough oil prices. Um, you know, it used to be that, uh, you know, high 40s for WTI or, or roughly $50 was enough to generate blowout blowout production growth uh, in the U.S. shale patch. Uh, I think that price point has has gone up uh, since since that time. Yeah, I think the other oil oil price is a big component of it, like you said, Aaron. But we talked to Alan Lammy, who was uh, who's our natural gas analyst on the point logic side and gas prices are, you know, at at levels that we hadn't seen in quite a few years. And so right. that's another component of the uh, of the mix as well. It's like, okay, well, oil prices are at this level, but gas prices are high too, right? So it just depends right. on 
the exposure of this uh, uh, of said producer and what plays they're in, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not it's not just oil, although that's the biggest component of it. There's these other pressures on on them as well, right? That's right. It's uh, you know a lot a lot of people don't realize this, but a lot of gas is produced in association with oil. Not all oil wells, but you know, in the Permian Basin, there's a lot of wells that throw off a lot of gas as well. And so, you know, that figures into the economics of drilling that well. If if gas prices are four dollars like they are right now instead of, you know, two and a half, uh, that can make a big, a big difference, especially in some of the gasier plays, you know, like the Eagle Ford in in uh, Texas uh, has a lot of gasier plays, you know, play, uh, oil wells that that uh, generate a lot of associated gas. So absolutely, that's that's part of the uh, part of the mix and part of the economics. So the key message is capital discipline will continue. The only question is to what extent next year. You, I think you're you're saying to a greater to a great extent next year, right? Yeah, I think the bottom line is that there could be quite a wide range of U.S. Um, crude production scenarios next year. Um, depending on the decisions by the industry uh, to uh, to generate free cash flow. So in other words, are they going to return, you know, 50% of cash or 30% of cash? You know, that 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 would move the needle quite a bit in terms of how much they'd have left over to spend on a new drilling. And then, of course, the oil price environment, like I just mentioned, you know, there's a big difference now between $50 WTI and uh, 65 or 70 or even 75 dollar WTI. Just a just a, a you know to no surprise a stronger stronger commodity market uh, pricing environment gives a lot more flexibility to these players. Yeah, you had a fantastic slide on our webinar um, just a couple of days ago um, where you showed that. I think that was very uh, that was a very telling uh, insight on where production could go next next year, or at least production growth for, for the U.S. producer. So again, for our listeners, shameless plug, if you're a subscriber to the NALO, uh, you will have access to that webinar. So check that out um, from Aaron. So having talked about all that we've covered, what are some of the other big unknowns going forward, particularly in the long term? Yeah, well, the 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 biggest unknown, you know, yeah, I think you 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 have to talk about the energy transition, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we've pointed out that the energy transition, even though uh, people have been talking about it for decades, it's it really there really hasn't been any change in terms of decarbonization globally. Yes, in some markets like Europe, there there have been, but globally there hasn't been uh, much progress in terms of decarbonization however we think that you know last year was a, a pivot point uh, in the energy transition we've seen you know um, you know you just have to read the newspapers to know that uh, um, you know companies are boosting their uh, ESG spending uh, governments are throwing a lot of money towards uh, new technologies and creating mandates, you know, whether it's for EVs. So we we do think that the the energy transition is moving beyond slow motion, and um, that just creates a lot of uncertainty about uh, oil demand. Um, like like we talked about earlier in this podcast, the the industry has been used to kind of clockwork increases in oil demand globally year after mm -hmm. year. Well, that is uh, completely 
you know, uh, uncertain whether that's going to continue now. Just, uh, you know, the, just just because we we know we have to decarbonize doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But uh, I do think that, um, you know, if you're an upstream producer, that's the biggest uncertainty right now. Is demand going to be there or is that demand growth going to be there? And and that'll, you know, that'll um, impact their their investment decisions. Um, for example, we don't see a lot of um, we don't see a lot of mega projects going forward, long cycle mega projects going forward, where 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 you you know it might take seven to ten years to, to develop some deep water well offshore. Uh, we see more of an emphasis on you know short cycle um, projects where you can earn your money back quickly, um, and then that would you know that uh, shale would fall under that bucket, but so would other kind of incremental you know tieback uh, projects as well. Um, that sort of thing. So I think the, the the demand question around the energy transition that's the biggest uncertainty over the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it I found it interesting that maybe 20, 30 years ago we, we were worried about peak supply, and now uh, the focus has shifted to peak demand. And what are some of the drivers to the those concerns? I mean, is it electric vehicles, autonomous driving, ride sharing, work from home? Are the, are those the the drivers? Yeah, well, in other words, what would cause that peak demand? Is that yeah. is that the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I think if you look at oil demand and the components of oil demand, um, it, clearly transportation fuels are what what has historically driven that growth. So if you're going to flatten that growth, um, you have to target the transportation sector. And so yes, EVs are part of the equation, but so is just kind of boring fuel economy standards, right? I mean, just conventional vehicles um, as well. Although I do think that, you know, some of the standards that are uh, being, uh, that, that uh, you know, Europe and, and North America have aspirations for, um, for fuel economy standards, they really imply that a lot of the vehicle fleet is going to be electrified um, by, you know, 20, you know, by the 2030s, the 2040s, or at least new sales of vehicles will be heavily tilted towards uh, towards uh, EVs or some sort of electri- electrification of um, uh, trucks and and uh, light be- light duty vehicles. Uh, and we're seeing the auto industry move in that direction too. Most of their investment, uh, a lot of their investment dollars, has shifted towards electrifying their their different models. So I think that's part of it. But also biofuels will be. Uh, we're assuming that will be part of the equation. If you think about um, uh, aviation, that historically has been very difficult to uh, decarbonize. But, um, uh, you know, there is this thought that you can get these advanced biofuels and mix it with jet fuel and reduce the, uh, you know, the carbon content of of aviation fuel. Um, You know, there's there's other aspects to um, bending the curve on oil demand. There's, you know, kind of the circular economy and reducing the demand for petrochemical feedstocks, for example, um, that's part of it as well. Uh, but it it will be it will be a monumental task because you know if you just think about the transportation sector, the capital stock is very very large. You know all the trucks, buses, and cars that are in existence today they're on the on the road for a very very long period of time, and so it it turns over very slowly. So even if you even if you have high rates of um, sales of say electric vehicles it takes time for the entire fleet to become electrified uh, just because that you know that fleet is so large 
Yeah, that we had Mike Wall on the podcast uh, a few episodes ago. I was going to say issues because, you know, we also <laughs> publish, right? But a few episodes ago, and he made the point, which was very telling that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, the automakers were just basically paying lip service and they would have their toe in the water just to see if they could electrify their vehicles or, you know, do hydrogen fuel cells, et cetera. But now, I mean, they're they're really putting money, their money where their mouths are, right? And so yeah. they're jumping in whole hog into this whole electrification bit. And I got to tell you, Aaron, I, when I renovated my house, uh, I, you know, I put in a 220 connection uh, yep. in my in my carport just just in case, right? I'm I'm forced yep. to uh, buy a, a vehicle uh, that's electrified. So I think that that was. That was very interesting. And I also thought that it was very interesting that you brought up the whole fuels to chemicals because we also had Rick Castillo on talking about that integration of refinery to pet cams and how that's going to be crucial uh, for refiners going forward, especially in light of the fact that you talked about bending the curve on uh, on fuels demand and how to refiners respond. So it'll be a very interesting couple of years. So that whole preamble aside, how long do you think, or when can we expect uh, this whole concept of peaking uh, demand on oil? Well, I mean, you know, it, it really depends on the scenario. Um, you know, kind of if you if you look at the way things are heading right now, um, we've always thought that demand would would peak, um, even in our base case. Um, it just won't happen until, say, the 2030s. Um, but that, that being said, we've we've been progressively over the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic and the belief that, um, you know, we think that the energy transition is accelerating. We've been moving that time period forward when we when we think demand will peak. Uh, but but it's probably still, you know, at least another, you know, 10, maybe 15 years off in the base case. But you can imagine uh, much more. Uh, accelerated, uh, you know, energy transition. Um, you could have a, you know, a scenario where there are, um, you know, much more strict government mandates, um, and we may start be starting to see some inkling of that. And some of those mandates may be, um, yeah, may be a result of natural disasters that occur, where you know, uh, you know, citizens kind of rise up and say, you know what. We've seen enough. We need the government to do something much more rapidly, and and therefore the government starts mandating things like uh, electric vehicles or um, you know shutting down uh, you know carbon intensive uh, fuel plants, et cetera, so, something like that. So you you could see it happen much more rapidly. Technology will also pl play a role. You know, we think that EVs will become um, you know kind of cost. Uh, equivalent to internal combustion engine vehicles within this decade, but you know it could happen faster um, depending on you know the pace of technology. So uh, there's 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 you know the answer depends on you know your your views of where technology is headed and and how fast governments are going to actually um, act you know in, in, to to accelerate this energy transition. But even in the base case, it it, it is coming. No, that's great. Well, Aaron, I'm sure we're out of time. Otherwise, we could keep going. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we really thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. We hope you had fun. I know we did, and it was very informative. So thank you for coming on the podcast.
Yeah, no, this is really cool. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it. Check out ihsmarket.com chemical for more information on subscribing to our services. If you have questions or want us to cover something more specific, you can send an email to me at aaron.roberts at ihsmarket.com. Until next time. <laughs>